While we get to turn to Romans 10, we're looking at verses 14 to 21 in the continuation of our study. And I do want to just give a disclaimer before we get in. Because we are heading into one of those sections in verses 14 through 21 where some verses come out that are our favorite verses and favorite themes. And sometimes in expository preaching, you have heard a passage one way for so long that you come and somebody exposits it and they change it on you. And you're like, what are you doing? Wait, I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to hear this theme over here. Now we struggle with that. And, uh, and at times we uh, begin, to, there's a tension in our heart when we leave because uh, either we've heard a favorite preacher grab a verse and launch from it and preach and uh, it edified us or, or we have a particular doctrine or theme we really love. And so when a key word comes up, all of our mind runs to those great doctrines and we want it to be right there in the text. And then the pastor has the unmitigated gall to go preach something different than what we were expecting. You could be tempted to have that experience right here in Romans 10, 14 to 21, where you're expecting one thing and I take a left turn on you and then you're just sitting there in your seat wondering, when is he finally going to get to the things I want to hear? Well, I need to ask you, come along with me in the journey because our objective is to understand what Paul wrote. Not what I think, not what the church historically taught, not what some other pastor taught. Our objective is to know what Paul was trying to say to the Romans. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God moved him to communicate a particular message, and that's what's most important for us at this time. We may have the other discussions at other points, but at this time, we want to know what God is saying through his servant Paul so we can be built up and edified, particularly because we're talking about the gospel. And I know when we begin to talk about the gospel, we get passionate. Because it is that beautiful message that saved us. It's that beautiful message that opened our eyes and it caused us to see our own sin, the holiness of God, and to call out upon Christ to save us. And and so we have in our lives, our spiritual lives, a particular point that we reflect upon and we remember. So we have this kind of fondness in our own heart about the gospel. We want to hear it proclaimed. We want to hear it uh, emphasized regularly. But at times when we come to the scriptures, the scriptures are not only revealing the glories of the gospel, but the scriptures are also defending it. They're defending its sufficiency. They're defending its power. They're defending its clarity. And it's in the midst of that defense that we find ourselves in Romans chapter 10 here. So that Paul isn't so much concerned about giving the gospel in a simplified message. He is actually concerned with the church's confidence in this message. Against the ideology of the Jews that would come upon it, against the ideology of unbelief, he wants to be able to demonstrate the power and the clarity and sufficiency of this gospel so that you and I would have confidence in this message. That we wouldn't be tossed here and there. We wouldn't think we have to change something. We wouldn't think that God needs our wisdom to come along and rescue him. He has given us everything we need in this message. And so, again, I invite you as we jump into this journey together, let us 
in the joy of discovery, understand what Paul is trying to say to his church. So now, that's all the introduction. Now we get to start. We are in 9 through 11. The whole section fits together. And Paul has targeted his audience. He has targeted those who had embraced the Jewish ideology, the Jewish teaching and convictions, and he is targeting that audience specifically. And there's good reason, because it is that group that God first came to. It's that group that God called out as a nation to be his nation. It's that group that God blessed. It's that group that God sent the prophets to and God sent his word to. It's that group that was to be a nation that was to reflect his glory. But that same group also rebelled against God. That same group also held God at arm's distance. And though God reached out and God sought to bless them, as at the end of Romans chapter 10 and verse 21 describes, says, um, for he says to Israel, all the day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. God was loving towards Israel. God was generous and gracious and merciful all day, calling Israel to repentance, calling Israel to himself, but Israel was obstinate, was in rebellion and hostility. So God, in his glorious work, sent his Son into this world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought the message of God. The Messiah came And the Messiah was rejected by his own people. And Messiah came and he chose his disciples and he equipped his disciples with the gospel message to go out and to proclaim this gospel into all the world. Well, in the midst of that, God's own people rebelled against them and are hostile. And that Paul, at the end of chapter 8, says that we are secure. No one can take us from the hand of God. That his that he is working all things together for good, the very first question that would come to our mind is then what happened to Israel? So from Romans 9 through chapter 11, Paul is answering specific questions that would be on the hearts of his audience to defend the work of God and to defend his message so that we would understand what's taking place. And as we dive into these questions, we find the very questions that we wrestle with today in the church being answered. Just walking you through, and we are now, by moving into Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, we're now moving into the fifth argument that Paul is addressing You may not think that I've moved that fast, but I have. I've answered five questions over these uh, weeks. But the first question was, again, what about God's work? What about Israel? Has God failed to keep his promise? And verses from 9, 1 through 6, the answer is no. God has not failed to keep his promise because not all Israel is Israel. Because they have rebelled doesn't stop God's promises. When the question would be, well, then how is it that God is able to keep his promises? That led to the second argument that Paul made. Well, because God is sovereign. God is sovereign even in Israel's rebellion, even in their hostility, even in their rejection. He is still sovereign, sitting on his throne, accomplishing his good purposes, and their rebellion doesn't stop his sovereignty. In fact, he will accomplish his good purposes. As verse 16 of chapter 9 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
So then he has mercy, verse 18, on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Even as Israel's rebellion, God is sovereignly accomplishing his good purposes, and they will not be thwarted even in the present state of open hostility in the nation of Israel. He is sovereign. Which leads then to the next question. All right, if he's sovereign, so he's going to keep his promises, then how can he judge anybody? How can he hold anybody accountable if he's sovereign and it's all based on his sovereignty? That's what verse 19 asks of chapter 9. You will then say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, you could just see the domino fall one right after another as Paul is answering these questions. Okay, so if God's sovereign, how can he hold anyone, anyone accountable? To which Paul answers, wait a second, you crossed the line. You can't ask that question. Who's going to say to the maker, you know, to make me this, why did you make me this way? Who's going to say, what piece of clay can say to the molder, why did you make me like this? You don't even have the right to ask that question because you're not God. God is the creator and he's good and he is bringing about his glory. We can't ask that question. That's Paul's answer. From 9.19 through verse 29, he goes in and defends the glory of God. He defends God's great work, and he defends it for what God is accomplishing. He tells us what God is accomplishing in verse 22 and verse 23. He has grand purposes in all of this. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so, so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Why did God sovereignly operate this way? Because he's good, he has good purposes, he's bringing about his glory to reveal it, and he is just in all of his activities. That's what Paul defends there, all the way up to verse 29. To which then, the next question is, then how is God just in his condemnation? I mean, how can he, if he's sovereign and he is directing everything and he is moving it all according to his purposes, how can he be just in all of this? And the answer is because of man's unbelief, man's rebellion. And so from 9 verse 30 through chapter 10 verse 13, he seeks to demonstrate the justice of God. And the justice of God is vindicated by the power of the gospel. Because the gospel is powerful, because it is clear, because it is simple and understandable, because it is effective, because it's spread to the whole world indiscriminately, and because man rejects it in his rebellion, he is justly under the judgment of God. God has not withheld any good grace from man. God has not withheld that which they need to be saved. He has given it freely to them, but man in his unbelief has rejected it. In fact, Israel not only has rejected it, they have replaced the gospel of God with their own righteousness. That's what he says in chapter 9, 30, verse 33, not accepting the righteousness of God, they established their own righteousness. And the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness through the gospel, believing it, received the righteousness of God. So Paul is just contrasting the faith of the Gentiles versus the unbelief of the Jews, and he is showing God can justly condemn the sinner 
Even though he is sovereign, even though he's directing everything according to his purposes, even though he is orchestrating all of this to reveal his glory and that man in his rebellion is not going to thwart his purposes, he can justly condemn the wicked because they have rejected the gospel. They have not believed. They will not believe the report. As verse 11 says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He has sent us out to proclaim this message, to make it known so that they would hear, but they have been obstinate. So God can justly condemn. So God has, Paul has defended God's promises. Paul has defended God's sovereignty. God has Paul has defended God's character, and now Paul had defended God's justice. And now, Romans 10, verse 14 through 21, comes the fifth argument in our discussion here that Paul is laying out. And the fifth argument is this. God is, or Paul is defending God's work and calling us to be ministers of the gospel. How is it that God can hold man responsible? How is it that God can, is accomplishing his sovereign purposes? And the answer is because God sends us out, sends his servants out to carry out his ministry. Just one little note before we jump into this text. One of the questions that flood our minds when we think about the doctrine of God's sovereignty is, well, if God is sovereign, then why are we doing anything? Why don't we just sit back, sit on our couch, drink our favorite drink, and just watch God do his work? And the answer is revealed to us right here in Romans 10, verses 14 through 21. It's because God has commanded us to go proclaim his message. God has ordained the ends, those who would be saved, and the means to that end, those ministers who will proclaim the gospel to bring about the salvation of his people. And that is reconciled in this text right here. Some, speaking of sovereignty, want to say then, well, if you believe in a sovereign God, then you believe that you don't have to do anything, and God just does it all. And I'd say any person who believed that doctrine would then be in rebellion against God because, as we're going to see in our text here, God commands us. In fact, God sends us out to go proclaim his gospel. So in all this to say, sovereignty and human responsibility are not two enemies of each other. These are two doctrines that reconcile and harmonize with each other, and that is what is evident in this marvelous text here. And I'll seek to show that for you to you this morning. So we're looking at this text, and all that kind of sets up now our text. Here's what Paul says. Romans 10, 14 through 21 says this. How then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, 
they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This passage here unfolds like this for us. In the first part, in verse 14 through 15, we see the high calling and glory of gospel ministry. Verse 14, 15, the high calling and glory of gospel ministry. And then in verses 16 through 21, Paul defends it against two questions, two challenges that would come against it. The first challenge would come, well, if this glorious ministry is given to us, has it been limited in some way? Meaning, did they, why didn't they believe it? Why didn't they, is it not powerful enough? Verse 16 and 17 answers. And then verse 18, well, has it actually spread to everybody? Has everybody heard? And he answers that from 18 to 21. So we'll look at the, this morning, the glory and high calling of gospel ministry. And then next week, we will answer the objections to this ministry So let's just look at this rich passage. And remember, what Paul is doing here, he is demonstrating how it is that God is at work, even though in his sovereign purposes he's at work, he calls us out to be faithful, to obey his commands, to go preach the gospel. So he is really explaining how sovereignty and human responsibility work together and are not in opposition. But to do that, he starts with this lovely kind of uh, process of a progression here, working in the act of faith all the way back to its source. Notice how he begins the very first question. He asks a series of questions, four questions here, and in this question is a logical kind of progression from the end result back to its original source. So let's start with this question says again, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? First, the end result. How would you know when somebody is a believer? Well, here's an answer. They are calling out to God. They're calling upon God. That very God whom they had rejected, that very God whom they were hostile towards, that very God that they wanted nothing to do with, that wanted separation from God, in fact, they were angry at God, now they're calling out to God, God, save me. Calling. They're they're calling out to him, saying, rescue me. I do believe that the first act of faith And the regenerate heart is to call out to God, God, save me, a sinner. Rescue me from 
the error of my way. Forgive me of my sin. Deliver me from the wrath to come. Draw me to yourself that I would be your child, that I would see you for who you are. This is the fruit of faith. The fruit of faith is calling out to God in an acknowledgement. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, that we confess our sin. And he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. This is a calling out to God. And how do they call out? Well, Paul begins now this progression. Before they get to the point where there is a public demonstration, an outward expression of faith, an outward revealing of what's taking place inside the heart, before they get to a place of calling out, he says, how would they call out unless they believed? There is a belief. Again, this is a response of the sinner to believe. Believe upon the message that turns into then the calling out, the expression, the fruits of faith that come. Again, we would talk about the, this progression that you know, when we preach the gospel to somebody, we're calling them to believe. And the expression of their belief is then evidence in fruits. And one of those fruits is the expression of confession, the expression of calling out to God. They believe. What do they believe? Well, they believe his message. They believe what God says about Christ, what God says about himself, what God says about man and his fallen condition. They believe what God says about man's problem, being under the wrath of God. Heart believes. Or one is to the point in which they believe where they can then call out, or before one can call out, they have to believe God's message. So how would they believe then, would be the next question. All right, so if the fruit of calling out comes, and that is rooted in belief, how would one come to the place of believing? And that is the very next question, which Paul asks there. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? They need to hear the message before they could believe the message. The message has to be announced to them. The message has to be made known so that they have something to believe. It has to be proclaimed to them. And again, it's important to understand the context of this. This is in the first century. You couldn't run down to the local staples at this point and buy a ream of paper and go print it on your printer and start sharing the gospel in a track. Back in this time, if you wanted to record anything down, you're either recording it on clay tablets that would then be hardened, or you'd be going and forming papyri that you would be then stored, or you'd be taking leather and, and working it so that you can then create a scroll off of it. So not exactly a medium of being able to spread information from you know, person to person like we have today. We can send in digital forms the message today. We can, set, we can print it up, etc. So in this day, the primary means of communicating the gospel message is person to person, orally, communication. From one person expressing an idea to the next. So that's all Paul is focused on here. So I'm not saying in the midst of this, unless you want to like discredit me and say, well, he says the only way one can get saved is actually audibly hearing it. no. Certainly, any way which we receive the propositional truth, whether read 
or rather communicated verbally, one hears that truth and is saved. But in Paul's context, this was primarily delivered through oral communication. And so he says, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? There has to be a hearing of the message for one to be saved. Not saved in any other way. You're not saved because you had some personal impression. And that impression led you to God. You heard the message. You received that message. And this is important to to understand. It is in the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the objective truth of God's word that a person hears and comes to conviction and faith comes. I remember an early stage in our church life. Some of you who've been around for a long time remember this, this particular event because it struck me as quite odd that when we had finished our building up in, in Osprey, within the first like couple of weeks, we, um, somebody stopped by the church and said, uh, we would like to use the church as a soup kitchen. We have all the food. We have clothing. We can line it all up here. We'll just get a freezer, and we will store everything. This would be a great setup for the church to be able to minister to all the needy in the area. And I asked the individual at that time, okay, We're going to minister to their physical needs. When do we minister to their spiritual needs? When do we preach the gospel to them? Would they go, what would this look like? Would they come through, get their food, get their clothing, and then come into the sanctuary, and then we get to preach the gospel to them? And the guy said, no, no, wait a second. We can't do that. We can't preach the gospel to them because this food comes from the government. It comes from other sources that may have different agendas that we can't get in the way of that. So we can't preach the gospel to them. And I said to them at that point, then why would we get involved as a church if we can't give them their true spiritual need? And he answered to me at that point, well, Francis Assisi said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Right when I heard that, I got a little bit indignant because I said, well, the Apostle Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of truth. You are not saved simply by seeing some glorious example and saying, wow, that's a great example. I must, there must be a God out there. You might be prompted, you might be drawn, but that isn't the calling of God until you have heard the message and believed. There must be a proclamation of God's divine message that man hears. It's not an impression that led you to salvation. You weren't walking down the street one day and uh, seeing great architecture and saying, ah, there must be a God because look at this great design. I'm saved. It wasn't some sign you saw. It wasn't some near-death experience. It wasn't some cloud in the sky or some dream you had. None of those things led you to salvation. They might have brought conviction. They might have brought awareness. Again, they might have drawn you But until you heard the object of message of God's holiness and righteousness, your sinfulness, your need for a Savior, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you called out upon him as Savior, you were not saved. You need to hear the message. You need to understand it. Because, as Paul says in here, how will they believe in him whom they have not 
heard. Purpose, the work of God is for us to communicate the gospel, and that is the means in which God uses to bring about faith. Again, this isn't just Paul's words. Pause for a second and listen to the words of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And in verse 25, Peter says, And this is the word which was preached to you. He preached it, he proclaimed it, he announced it, he heralded it, and one heard, and upon hearing, they believed. You're not coming to the point of believing if you haven't first heard. All those other experiences, again, whether visions or dreams, whether impressions, those are things that the Lord may have used in his divine work in your life to draw you But until you actually heard the message and called out upon him, you have not come to saving faith. Again, there are many who shudder under the preaching of the truth, who have some kind of visceral emotional response, some kind of conviction that weighs. All of those things are, again, means in which the Lord is at work. But it is until... The hearing of the truth, then belief, then calling. And this is the progression that Paul lays out. From salvation, one manifesting the fruits of calling out to God, they have to believe. In order to believe, they have to hear. Well, what's next then? He asks the next question. And how will they hear without a preacher? The next question then, there must be somebody who is delivering this message. There must be a preacher. The term preacher here could be in the formal sense of one who is officially called, but it would just be in the general sense a herald, one who is, a mess, who is delivering a message. And I take even both aspects would be true here. In any expression of the ministry of the word, both formal and informal, there must be a source that comes and communicates it to us. That is by God's design. He designed us to be messengers Messengers to go out and minister the truth, to go out and to make it known. He, in his sovereign design, has ordained it to be that we in faith would believe his message and go out and herald that message. That is by his design. For the example, think about this formal and informal ministry. Think about Matthew chapter 28. We see the general call of everyone to go out and minister the gospel. Matthew chapter 28, kind of concluding words that our Lord gave to his disciples. And he says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 and following. So Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the passage known as the Great Commission. Jesus 
commissioning his disciples to go out and to be heralds into all the world, making disciples of all nations, proclaiming the gospel. Of course, this message is given directly to his disciples, but his disciples then entrust us with this message. Turn over to 1 Peter. You see this in 1 Peter 3, this idea. Peter, and this is, again, this is a general calling to go out and to preach. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says there, in verse 15, 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Notice, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. He's saying at every moment, we're ready to speak up. We're ready to talk about God's work, ready to defend our practices, ready to give an explanation for why we do what we do, ready to, to give an explanation for what we believe. So there's, in one sense then, we are all called to be heralds, to be preachers of the gospel, to go out into all the world and to communicate it. But there's also then a specific call. Let me show you this. Turn to... 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see the specific calling. Those who may be uniquely gifted to communicate the gospel, to defend the ministry of the word of God. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, hopefully I said 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice, the things which you have heard from me. Now notice, Paul says, look, I've been communicating. I've been ministering to you truth. You've heard me teach this. In fact, in the presence of many witnesses, I've been teaching this publicly, making it known to many people. The things which you have heard from me, He says, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, they're going to be specific men with specific abilities who have been around the message, the message which you've heard. You take that message and you give it to them. You teach them, train them, prepare them, equip them, affirm them, and you send them out to do this work. The same thing. Because God has ordained the specific purpose of using his servants to communicate his message. Because how will they hear unless there is a preacher? How will they come to saving faith unless one is proclaiming the message? How will they come to a place where they can call out to God unless there is someone faithful to minister that message? We all are called to it as believers in Christ, generally. But then there are specifically those who are equipped to do this work under the accountability. Now notice one more truth. Turn back to Romans 10. All right, the progress. There are preachers. There are ministers. There are messengers. There are heralds, which we're all a part of. And we go and we proclaim, and the message is heard. And upon hearing, one believes. And upon believing, they manifest the fruit of calling out to God. But the last question that Paul asks in chapter 10, verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? 
I love this. God sends his servants. God appoints his his servants and he sends them out. Like even in our response and our obedience to go out and proclaim the gospel, it didn't originate in us. We're not self-appointed ministers. We're not self-appointed in this message. We are sent out by God. Every one of us, every time you communicate the gospel, you are in obedience to the command of God, responding in faith and communicating that message because God sent it to you and sent you the command. Go. Go do this. Be very cautious and even skeptical of the ministry that seeks to do the Lord's work without being sent. You have not been sent. You are not of God's message. God's message stands up under scrutiny. God's messengers stand up under scrutiny because they're not coming in their own message. They have been sent out with a message. Again, thinking of Paul saying to Timothy, the things you've heard and received from me and trust these things to faithful men who are what? Are going to be able to teach that to others also. It's not their own message. There's the message which was handed down to them. And they are sent out, commissioned to go do that very work. They are sent. You see, the self-appointed person doesn't want accountability. Self-appointed person doesn't want scrutiny. The self-appointed person doesn't want to have their message evaluated and measured against the Scripture because they just want their objectives. They want their own purposes. They're self-appointed, but not the sent ones. The sent ones are always under accountability. Accountability to the body of doctrine that we have received. Accountability to the church, which upholds and protects the truth. Accountability, of course, to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just this last, yeah, just yesterday, sitting with a group of students in the classroom, getting ready for training. Expositors has the privilege of you know, training, and we have 12 campuses throughout the U.S., 12 different churches set up, all linked together through the technology that we have today. One of the benefits of the technology is that it is, again, able to connect these classrooms. We're able to connect professors from across these 12 campuses, each guy with a different strength and ability. And they're there teaching, and they're teaching their local students, and they're teaching the students in the other classrooms. We've got cameras set up in there, and we have microphones set up in there. And what I had to say to the students as they were sitting there is, guys, get prepared because everything is recorded. You scratch your head funny, that's recorded. You know, you whisper to your friend right there, guess what? That mic catches it, it's recorded. Everything is recorded so that as you're in class, conduct yourself in such a way as to remember that you are recorded the whole time. And this is good, and I told the men yesterday, this is good preparation for you because every time I stand up here in the pulpit, everything is recorded, recorded in video, recorded in audio, and is dispensed. Well, after the, the whole um, time together, uh, we had a, a technical issue we needed to work out, and I had to climb up on a ladder of course, the ladder wasn't tall enough to get up to the mic, so I had to do, you know, violate every OSHA requirement. I stood right at the top of the ladder. And as I was on top of that ladder, uh, I then said to the IT guy, um, 
uh, is this, you know, this doesn't quite feel safe. He says, don't worry, it's all recorded, so it'll be on social media. <laughs> there is this, no matter, again, in the midst of all of that, our lives are watched entirely. You know, again, it's, I was thinking about it as even between services, the realization that's nothing new. Obviously, God sees everything of our lives. It's always watched. We're just becoming more and more aware of it today. Back, back to our truth here in Romans chapter 10. How will they preach unless they are sent? A sent one is under obligation to the one who sent them. They're under scrutiny. They're going to be evaluated by the one who sent, the one who had the authority to send them out and to go. God sends us out and he sends us with his message. So we're not coming in our own message. We're not coming with our own ideas. We're not coming with our own agendas. We're not coming with our own purposes. We were coming with the message of God to proclaim that message so that people would hear and upon hearing, believe, and upon believing, call call upon God the progression of this glorious ministry that we have been entrusted with. It's not self-appointed ministry. It is divinely appointed ministry with faith-filled people who are obeying the divine call of God. Sovereignty and human responsibility, not in opposition, but working together in harmony, accomplishing God's good purposes. God is sovereign, and he's demonstrating his sovereignty in our belief our calling out. And in our act of faith, we respond to his message to go proclaim the truth. And in obedience to the truth, we preach. And as we preach, they hear. And as they hear, they believe. And as they believe, they manifest the fruits of faith by calling out upon God. These aren't hostile truths. He's at work. He's accomplishing his good work. Which leads us to the glorious truth that Paul ends with in verse 15, wrapping this all up. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. What a sweet message. Paul says this is the most glorious, the most encouraging, the sweetest of messages to be proclaimed It is a message of glad tidings of good things. This is the greatest message to proclaim. Indeed, how sweet it is the message we get to proclaim in this day and age. When we live in a world that's filled with fear, filled with absolute terror, we have, again, a system within our culture that is created to stir up fears so that you will give up certain things so others would have authority. I mean, listen to how many politicians. You need to vote for me, otherwise they're going to take away your rights. You need to vote for me, otherwise they're going to take away your children. You need to vote for me, otherwise they're going to take away and just fill in the dot of that thing that you want the most. I need to create fear, so in fear you're willing to give up something. Which politician comes along and says, let's love, let's demonstrate the love of God. Follow me because I'm going to help you love others and help you love God. Which person comes along and says, actually, you can have peace with God. All the fear you have of security, all the fear you have of wars, all of this can immediately be ended if man just turned back to God. 
if he just believes. They don't have that because they don't have the message of God. We have a world today that wants to live apart from God. And as they live apart from God, they don't have any answer for what family looks like. They don't have any answer for what men and women look like. They don't have any answer for what logic is. They don't have any answers for life because they have abandoned God. So how beautiful is our message that we can bring clarity to family. We can bring clarity to God's message, to the glory of God. We can bring peace and we can bring love and we can bring to man what man desperately longs for security, because we have a message of love, a message that demonstrates God's grand love towards us and that we can share with others. So indeed, we have this glorious, beautiful message to proclaim. And as we've been seeing, it didn't originate in us, because if it did, we'd exalt ourselves. If it did, we would exalt our wisdom, exalt our popularity, take advantage of this ministry for our own personal gain. That's not why we're here. We are commissioned by God to preach his good news. Which leads us to the objections, which we'll look at next week. Meanwhile, if we have this great news and this is how people are saved and upon saving, you know, upon someone going out and preaching this great message, And upon preaching it, they hear, and upon hearing, they believe, and they call out, then why haven't they all believed? Why hasn't everyone then received this? Because we've been making it known. How come they're not all believing? He'll answer that, and then he'll answer the other question, well, maybe we haven't done enough to get the message out. Maybe we haven't gone, gone far enough. Maybe we haven't spread to all the edges. Maybe that's the problem. No. Verse 18 through 21 answers, no, that's not the problem. God has been ministering his word. But that's for next week. For us, what I want us to remember is this, our kind of takeaways. We are responsible to respond to the truth. We are to believe. But God has called us to that, commissioned us, equipped us, so that even in God's sovereign purposes, as he has enabled us for all of this, our response is just an act of, of faith. We believe his message. We believe what he has said. When we look back, we're going to see his good hand at work, and we're going to see our faith grow and mature as we were yielding in obedience to him. So these doctrines, sovereignty, and human responsibility, don't let anybody pit them against each other. And don't yourself, in your own heart, pick a favorite and ignore the other. You know, as I said when I first came to Saving Grace Bible Church, some weeks I'm going to stand up in the pulpit and sound like a Calvinist. In other weeks, I may get up in the pulpit and sound like an Arminian. I don't care what I sound like as long as I sound like what God has said in his word. When he has communicated through his author the intended message, that is what we ought to listen to and be shaped by, and God will grow us in. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths because we recognize as we are coming under them, they are shaping us, they are protecting us, they are growing us, they are, they are making us prepared for the day of difficulty. They are maturing us so that we would be strong. They are tempering us so we wouldn't be filled with fears ourselves or filled with pride. 
They're causing us to rejoice in your good work. They are giving us comfort. So as we proclaim your message with confidence, we can do that because it doesn't come from us. It comes from you. And indeed, we pray, Father, may we rejoice in the beauty and the glory of your gospel. For indeed, it is so sweet. And oftentimes, because we have been hearing it for so many years and talking about it for so long, what we love and appreciate has become dull. And so we ask, just give us another glimpse of the riches of your grace, the power of your truth. May be demonstrated in the faithfulness of those who repent and turn from their sins. May be demonstrated in the riches of your kindness as you are maturing us. May you open our eyes to see all the ways that you are ministering. May we always have a great appreciation for being a part of this work. Whether it's informally as just a child of God responding in faith to the general call of ministry or whether it be specifically in that unique calling in which you put your hand upon a servant to use him for gospel ministry. Whatever the call, Father, we rejoice to know that it all originates in you. So thank you for this truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.